Welcome to Reset with Amber Lyon. This is the official podcast for the Natural Medicines News website, reset.me. And today I want to talk about fear because fear is one of the nastiest things known to man. The only thing we have to fear really is fear itself. Fear keeps us from becoming friends with our neighbors because we're so scared other people are going to harm us and so then we can't develop a sense of community. Fear keeps us trapped in dead-end jobs that aren't fulfilling because we're too scared to take risks and go and follow our passions. Fear keeps us in relationships that we know aren't beneficial for us because we're just too scared to leave. And most tragically, fear really keeps us from really realizing our dreams. Lao Tzu once said, quote, Be careful what you water your dreams with. Water them with worry and fear, and you will produce weeds that choke the life from your dreams. Water them with optimism and solutions, and you will cultivate success. Always be on the lookout for ways to turn a problem into an opportunity for success. Always be on the lookout for ways to nurture your dream. A dream of mine since I was a little kid was always to become a journalist, and I had a lot of fear around it. I was told, why don't you become a doctor or a lawyer? Journalists will never make any money. You're going to be homeless, and you're also going to become a target for those you investigate. Well, I'm pretty damn happy that I didn't give in to the fear, and instead I followed my heart and followed my passion. And I truly can say at this point in my life, I don't have any regrets because I've never given in to the fear. When fear comes up in my life, I always look at it as a challenge and something that needs to be faced. And the greater the fear, the more I want to get in there and tackle it because I know fear is resistance. Fear is resistance to us being happy. Fear wants to keep us depressed. Fear wants to just make us scared of everything so we crawl into a box and are living in a prison. I've had a lot of fear. I've had fear in almost every investigation I've conducted A fear has come up, fear that I'm going to be retaliated against or or that something's going to go wrong. When I was covering the revolutions overseas, I, I had a lot of fear because we were entering these foreign countries exposing these horrific regimes and their human rights abuses. And I knew that these regimes did not want that. When I was in Bahrain and my crew and I snuck into villages to film horrific human rights abuses at the hands of the U.S. backed regime, I mean, we're talking doctors, lawyers, journalists being tortured and suffocated with tear gas. And as I was entering each village, my body was trembling. I'd look down, I'd see my hands shaking because I was so scared. But I knew in my heart that I needed to get that video. And so I went anyway. I faced that fear. And I'm so glad I did. Because even though we had machine guns pointed at our head, and, and the regime tried to erase our video, I was able to get out of the country with some of that video and expose what was happening and be proud of my work and proud of my ability to help these people. And many people were helped by our documentaries. And had we given in to that fear and not shot that video, I'd have so much regret at this point in my life. I had a ton, an overwhelming amount of fear when I made the decision to expose that CNN had censored my Bahrain documentary. Many people told me, I asked many of my colleagues, should, should I come out? You know, this is keeping me up at night, knowing that they're censoring news on behalf of governments and getting paid by governments worldwide. It's, 
I know this secret and I feel like I need to tell the people. And I'd had colleagues tell me, you're crazy. You'll never get a job again in the mainstream. You know, just just be quiet and just keep going. Use your platform. You don't want to lose your platform at CNN. But even though I had this overwhelming fear, I knew in my heart I had to do the right thing. And instead of following the fear, I followed my heart. And I knew I had to be able to look at my face in the mirror and look at myself and know that I had integrity. And I knew if I didn't face my fear, I wouldn't be able to do so. And that morning when Glenn Greenwald told me the stories were going to come out in The Guardian exposing CNN and their censorship of my documentary, I was terrified. I I could barely get out of bed. I was having trouble breathing. I had butterflies in my stomach. I I felt like I was going to throw up. But I still faced that fear and I still told Glenn to go ahead and publish those stories because I knew in my heart it was the right thing. And, and the stories came out. And one of my fears was that CNN was going to assassinate my character and make me seem like some disgruntled employee, which they did. Another fear was that I was going to be retaliated against physically, which thank goodness hasn't happened. But because I didn't give in to those fears, I can look at myself in the mirror and know that I stood my ground and I did the right thing. And that is priceless. And that gives me happiness to this day. Before I went down to try ayahuasca, one of the most powerful psychedelics on earth, I I was terrified as well. I had so much fear. I'd never done a psychedelic before, but something inside, you know, this voice inside of me was telling me that ayahuasca could help me and I needed to face that fear. I had colleagues and friends tell me I I was going to go down to the jungle and never come back and don't do it. That's too much of a risk. It's a risk. Don't take that risk. But I didn't listen to them. I followed my heart and I went down and I tried ayahuasca. And ayahuasca transformed my life for the better. It literally turned my life right side up and exposed me to not only personal healing, but the amazing wonders of the universe and so much beauty in life that I don't think I would have been able to discover without it. I had fear before starting Reset.me. I had a ton of fear. I mean, I'm going out into the public exposing that, A, I've used these quote-unquote illegal substances, and, and B, that maybe what you've been told by the pharmaceutical industry and the U.S. government isn't true. And I, I had a ton of fear starting this website, you know, fear that I'd be retaliated against, fear that people in the public would just call me some kind of drug addict. But I still followed my heart. I knew the public needed to know the truth about these medicines. And because I followed my heart, I have no regrets. And I know I'm doing the right thing. And my life has been filled with an overwhelming sense of enrichment and nourishment because I know no matter how much fear comes my way, I'm still following my passion and my correct path. And as we talk about fear today, I I couldn't think of a better guest than Donald Schultz. Uh, Donald is an extreme adventurer. We're talking extreme. This man is facing fear almost every day of his life, and he's also a filmmaker. And Donald and I just spent three weeks in the Amazon covering the benefits of natural plant medicines. And after our shoots, Donald and I would be sitting around the dinner dinner table talking, and I'd just be listening to his stories over and over and over in his life about how he's constantly faced fear head on and conquered it. 
And I'd have to pick my jaw up off the floor after hearing some of his stories, especially some he's going to tell you soon about literally living in a glass house filled with snakes, something we're all taught to fear. And Donald is really an extremely talented filmmaker. Uh, He's also a commercial diver. So when he goes down, he doesn't just dive. He actually dives with great white sharks without cages. Uh, He deals with poisonous snakes, venomous snakes all the time. He's a herpetologist. He's a vet technician. And chances are you've seen several of his programs on TV um, on Animal Planet. He had a show called Wild Recon. Also a show, Venom in Vegas. That's the one I was talking about where he was living with venomous snakes. On Discovery Channel, he had a show called Feeding Frenzy. Also, Animal Intervention on National Geographic Wild. Well, thank you, Donald, so much for joining us. It's such an honor to have you on the show. You're definitely a badass and someone that people can look up to and someone who is not working a nine-to-five job. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, we we had a lot of fun down in the the rainforest and we got to experience something that very few people get to experience and feel very privileged to have spent that time with you. It was it was really amazing to see the transformation on the plant medicines of of so many people in our group. People had come in, maybe experienced childhood abuse and left laughing like they had to shed all these layers of emotion and and pain and and really I, I think a, a central theme of taking the medicines that you witnessed, I'm sure behind the camera, was overcoming fears. Yeah, absolutely, overcoming fears. And and one thing that, that resoundingly came through was everyone has shit happen to them. Like there's bad stuff that happens to everyone. Like, you know, everyone's like, well, I had a bad upbringing. I had, you know, abusive parents. I had an alcoholic mom. It happens to everyone. Like we all have bad stuff. And to, to have that in the background and sort of give substance to your fears is really not, it's not worth it. It's just, it's just it doesn't make any sense. And for me, it was it was this fear every day before I went up to drink the ayahuasca. I don't know why I just get overwhelmed with fear. And it, we're going to talk about how you actually have the courage to jump out of planes and, and base jump in wingsuits. But for me, it was kind of it was it was to that level, like going up and actually swallowing that cup of ayahuasca because you never know where it's going to take you or what's going to be uncovered. And and that was always like completely facing my fears every night. And I and I felt like. Uh, I felt like it became something that when I was able to overcome that and drink the ayahuasca, it was very empowering to to actually look at my fear in the eye and be like, you know what, I'm in control now. And that's the thing is you need to understand what fear is. You know, Bill Hicks famously said that there's two emotions, love and fear. And if you break the world down into love and fear, it becomes very black and white. There's no more gray areas. And if you look at a lot of how people act and how they react and how they in, in, you know, engage in this world that we're in, you can break it down into love and fear. And understanding fear and where it's coming from and why it motivates us and why it you know, cripples us is a really powerful thing. And, and I, I think especially seeing people work with ayahuasca and seeing people go into this unknown area, they're able to tackle fears not only on this realm, but you know things that they've forgotten about, things that they may think don't affect them anymore, but are absolutely in their subconsciousness, like a big shadow of the entire existence. And so you're someone who I think has really mastered overcoming fears. I mean, every time you have to jump out of a plane, every time you wrestle snakes, live in a, a live literally with snakes for days at a time, which we'll get into in a moment. 
you you are facing your fears. Have you always been that way since since a kid, or is this something that you constantly have to try to overcome? Well, I mean, my, my childhood, you know, I uh, I grew up in South Africa. I grew up to a, you know in a poor family who really all they had was each other, um, you know, and and the ability to go outside and explore the world. And when I was really young, I was born with double pneumonia, and I spent something the first four years in and out of hospital. So like very much in this. I want to call it fever dream world, uh, but basically where you know reality is not as tangible as we think it is now. And I think a lot of people forget how you know how unreal the real world is. Um, but growing up in South Africa, there was a lot of things to be scared of. There was a lot of very fear-based society. It was in the height of apartheid. Um, you know, white people believed black people were coming to kill them. Were waiting for the day to drive them into the ocean. So it's very much the subculture of fear or culture of fear. Um, so understanding, you know, where it comes from and what's motivating, which is really important. Uh, and in our, one of my first memories was as a kid, we had a huge baboon in our school, and all of us thought it was the greatest day in the world because there's a baboon in our school. And the the nature conservation guys came out and they shot it, they killed it. And I remember being moved because I thought well you know why do we have to kill the baboon just for our safety like can't we both live together the next experience at the same school was a massive lizard in the in the aviary where we kept our birds and everyone ran away screaming and said the lizard was was poisonous which which we know they aren't um, and I went inside and caught in a box I must have been five years old and my report card for that year was Donald loves anything that creeps crawls or flies and that was basically my you know my mantra going forward is is exploring this world that people normal people are scared of and that's obviously gone from initially animals to all these other realms that I dwell in and normal people are very scared of snakes yeah. uh, snakes you have some here in your yeah. house yeah, we're filming the podcast here now. And also, it's it's something, you know, a creature that you've been very passionate about your, your whole life. Where everyone runs from snakes, you actually run toward them. Something I noticed in the jungle. And, and you're so excited to see them and pick them up and, and explore them, even venomous snakes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. Like, for, for me as a kid, when I was six years old, I remember going with my dad. And um, we were going to a hospital and there was a snake being attacked by a bird. And he ran up and chased the bird off and picked the snake up. And I was like, well, that's cool. You know, that's so interesting. Took the snake to our local snake park that identified it. And while we were there, uh, we walked into the back area and there was a rattlesnake. And for me, that was like seeing a unicorn. You know, it was a snake that stood up and rattled. I'd heard about them and made this noise. It looked badass like a rattlesnake does. And I was like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Understanding creatures that can fit in the palm of your hand but kill you. Um, and where 99% of the population runs away screaming, especially in Africa, we got mambas and cobras and vipers and all these really big gun snakes. That was really my calling. And, and understanding them to the point of not being afraid of them is really easy. It's, it's like anything. The more you know about it, the easier it is to overcome those fears. And so how did you develop your love of snakes? Uh, you, you started working with them at a very young age. So that same snake park that we went into, that was when I was six years old. Um, I continued to keep snakes. Basically, every free moment, I'd finish school, go out into the bush, look for snakes, educate myself as much as possible. It's probably one of the few nine-year-old kids that knew snakes' scientific names. And I was definitely like a nerd and outcast in my school because I was the snake guy, you know. Uh, back then, there was no Steve Owen. There was no, you know, Animal Planet. There was still very much snakes. The only good snake's a dead snake. Um, I remember when I was in the third grade uh, or fourth grade, I was in, it was a summer's day in Africa. 
sitting in class, daydreaming, just hating school. And um, one of the parents of one of the kids came to our school and asked the principal if I could catch a snake in their house. Um, the word had got out there was a snake eye. So the principal and this parent came to our class at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon. School finished at 2 and said, would you mind doing this? So on the way back from the person's house, I had the snake in my hand. I'd gotten out of school. I had a new pet. Um, I got to go on an adventure. I was like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to spend my life you know, pursuing knowledge of snakes, stopping people from killing snakes and snakes from killing people, um, and just exploring this, this adventure that, that you know, basically led me to this point now. And that carried on until I started working at a snake park, the same snake park I went to when I was a kid. Um, maybe four or five years later, um, when I was 13, I first started volunteering. Um, I'd go and just clean the python cages and the crocodile cages. Then they started paying me like a dollar a day. It wasn't very much money. Um, the liability laws in South Africa were very loose. So you know, I was eventually working with mambas and cobras and pythons and really dangerous creatures. Um, and because I was small, they would send me into the roofs and snake call-outs or send me up trees because my body was just a lot smaller. And, you know, by the time I was 14 years old, I was working with some of the most deadly creatures in the world in a professional setting. And that set me up on this path of being able to not only understand what I'm looking at, but be able to explain it and also see the world through the snake's eyes. You know, everyone always thinks, well, the snake's trying to kill me. It's like, well, you're trying to kill the snake, too. So it's a, a two way street. Did you ever have fear crawling into crocodiles cages or, or dealing with the snakes or no. you just haven't? No, now that you understand them, you don't fear them. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's weird because there is a certain amount of apprehension and there's a huge amount of respect, but fear is probably the wrong word. You know, if you, if you try and understand what fear is, um, you know, you, you have to look at three different aspects. You know, there's the, the subjective version of the word, right? What is, what is it subjectively? And fear subjectively can be overpowering. You can be crippled with fear. You could sit somewhere and not be able to move if someone put a gun to your head or there was a lion in front of you or a car's about to hit you. Subjectively, that could be crippling. Objectively, it's, it's really nothing. You know, if you see a gun pointing at someone's head, you're a bit scared for them, but there's nothing really there. It's just an anticipation of fear. And the word itself, like what does fear mean? It's it's scared of pain or scared of discomfort or if you take those out of it then fear really has no power so working with a lot of these snakes you know the rule is just don't get bitten and it ends really well and that's the same thing when it comes to base jumping or motorcycles or sharks if you take the fear out of it the, the, the whole equation changes and you mentioned too that you were able to lose a lot of your fear of snakes once you became educated about them and studied them more do you think that's a way that many of us can conquer our fears is, is if we have phobias really try to delve in and, and absorb more knowledge about these things that are, are holding us back? Uh, ignorance and fear are best friends. By, you know, absolutely. The more you know about something, the less scary it becomes. And 99% of the time when you speak to someone who's done something that they feared for a long time, they always say the same thing. Wasn't that bad? You know, obviously there are exceptions, but living your life in a, in a fear state, you know, the, 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 the neurotransmitters and the chemistry your body gives off in a fear state, they're tangible and, and has a, a result on your psyche and your physiology. So living in a fear state is definitely not a good idea. And, and understanding what is making you scared and why you are scared are two really important things. And once you understand it, it's never as bad as it seems. The mind is such a powerful thing. Uh, one of the things that really stuck with me is we, we were doing some work with informal settlements in Africa and um, this guy was bitten by a snake and he went to the Sangoma which is a witch doctor basically a traditional healer and she said that's a black mamba you're gonna die and he died 
And they brought the snake to us for the identification and turned out to be a non-venomous house snake. And what I learned from that is, you know, the, the fear of the experience can often be so powerful that it will, you know, be worse than actual experience itself. So, the, you know, psychosomosis from that killed this guy because he believed so fundamentally if the snake was dead, he was going to die, that he died. It had no physiological effect on him other than him believing it was deadly. So that's always stuck with me. If you think something bad is going to happen, you fear it, you can often pull it on yourself. Uh, whereas if you think, well, this is a shitty situation, I hope it turns out well, that's all, often a lot better than like, oh, that car is definitely going to hit me. And I think so many of us are trapped in, in this prison of fear. Because like you said, we do fear the feeling of fear <laughs> more than actually what will happen. And, and I, I want to read this quote that I got from this book called Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. I think it's a great book for everyone to read. We're all warriors in, in our own matter and, and at our own degrees, uh, with Donald definitely being <laughs> way up there when it, when it comes to, to being a warrior of fear. But uh, this quote in, in the book says, Acknowledging fear is not a cause for depression or discouragement. Because we possess such fear, we are also potentially entitled to experience fearlessness. True fearlessness is not the reduction of fear, but going beyond fear. And, and I think this quote really reminded me of you, Donald, because I asked you at one point, I, I said, do you get scared? Do you have fear? And, and you've said, yeah, very clearly, like I'm constantly confronting it. And, and that's what allows me to have fearlessness. Yeah, I mean, you, you must you, you can't live in a fearless totally fearless world because then you'd get hit by a car and you'd fall off a you know off a cliff or or you know get stabbed at night in a bad neighborhood knowing what fear is identifying it and putting it in a in a basket really does help um and and you know the 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 fear that you feel is a built-in self-preservation thing it's you know your, your instincts of self-preservation trying to keep you alive but having that govern your entire life is when it comes out of control like anything needs to be in balance um, you know, going into a situation and being fearless is different to going into a situation and being careless. So, you know, for me, you know, when I jump off a cliff or jump out of a helicopter or work with an elephant or, you know, swim with sharks, I don't let fear govern what I'm doing. Like, I don't make bad decisions based on my fear. But at the same time, I'm not careless and reckless with my life. So it's trying to find that, that, that happy medium between the two. But a lot of what I've done has often been motivated by fear. I've got a really bad fear of heights like most people have. And the way I thought... Wait, I'd... so you're telling me you have a fear of heights? Yeah, the, yeah. The base jumper and, and wingsuiter. And that's the reason I started jumping was because I was so scared of it. I was like, I, why is this... Like, I'd shut down. And even when I was jumping a, a lot... I wouldn't be able to look over the edge of, of buildings and cliffs and that. I wouldn't like physically be able to do it just because it would shut me down. But I'd force myself to do it anyway. Jump off. And the moment you step off, everything makes sense. And then, then you're in the zone. You're like, okay, I, it's not as bad as I anticipated. That being said, intuitions played a massive part in my life. If something feels wrong and my body says this doesn't feel right, and not, not being scared, but being like this is doesn't feel right I'll walk away from a situation and I think that saved my life on many many occasions I think people get fear and intuition mixed up intuition is that the gut feeling a millisecond before you're doing something that says to you hey shit ain't right like versus fear is an overpowering late nights worrying about something that's that's something entirely different and most people run away from their fears I find it fascinating that because you were scared of heights you decided to become a base jumper uh, for people who aren't familiar with base jumping, can you can you tell me what it is? Like explain base jumping because 
Skydiving is scary enough, but base jumping is. Isn't it one of the most dangerous sports in the world? Or yeah, these- it's, it's the most dangerous sport in the world. And, and um, base stands, it's an acronym for um, building antenna span earth. So it's basically buildings, antennas like, you know, TV towers, spans being bridges and an earth being the earth. Um, it was invented, you know, 25 years ago. Guys started jumping off of Half Dome in, in Yosemite with skydiving gear on. So get put in perspective, skydiving, you jump out of a plane from about 10, 12,000 feet. It takes about 1,000 feet for your parachute to open, usually opening around 3,000 feet. Base jumping, the lowest I've jumped is 190 feet, um, usually opening, you know, within a couple seconds to a couple minutes of jumping. The, the big difference is you have a lot of proximity to things. So you'll jump off a building, you'll be right next to the building when you open. Um, a lot of people say it's adrenaline junkie, you know, you know people on it with a death wish. And the, the opposite I found is to be true. Most of the base jumpers that I've jumped with and know and are still friends with and, and hang out with have the most profound appreciation for life because they realize that there's no tomorrow, that yesterday doesn't matter. There is only this ever present now, you know, sort of like what we saw with Aboriginal people and you, you get in dogs and cats and animals. They don't worry about the future. They don't worry about the past. They worry about now. And when you're about to jump off a building or jump off a cliff or jump off a, a you know a radio tower in the middle of Texas and, at midnight, you know who gives a shit about bills and who cares about what school you went to and who cares about you know the first person that broke your heart? All you're worrying about is now, um, and that I think is the part that gets um, a little bit addictive with base jumping. But at the same time, it's you know no one's been able to do in the history of humans that we know of what we're able to do now. You know wingsuit flying. You know, you can jump off a a 500 foot rock, you can fly a couple of inches off the ground for two minutes, open a parachute, land and go have a beer. Like the, the, the ability to be able to fly is something so, you know, integral in human evolution. Everyone's had flying dreams. Not everyone dreams of skateboarding or motorcycles or ballet dancing, but every single human dreams of flying. And there's, there's a reason for that. It's, it's a, a, a release. It's a, you know, throwing off the shackles of gravity and, and being able to stand on a building superhero style in the middle of night and jump off and land and walk away is obviously something that mentally you you know it's, it's a huge accomplishment um, add to that that most places base jumping is illegal running around Los Angeles in the middle of night with your best friends breaking into buildings jumping off and running away from police it suddenly becomes life takes on a whole new realm like it's it's not nine to five there's no guarantees Best case scenario, you get away with your life. Worst case scenario, you break your shit and you get arrested. So it's it's interesting. So when you're, where, where are some things that you've base jumped off of? So so you're literally just running to the edge of a cliff or the edge of a building or a, a tower and just jumping. Yeah. So um, and you have a parachute. Yeah. Obviously, the, the parachute, <laughs> the, the parachute, the way you pack it um, can either open really fast if you're jumping low stuff or open slower if you're jumping high stuff because every second you fall your speed doubles until you go to 120 miles an hour so you're doubling speed till you till you get to 120 which is terminal velocity um so some of the things we've jumped buildings in downtown los angeles the ritz carlton uh was was one that we jumped was that a sneak jump yeah it was very very illegal um and it's i think the statute of limitations is over now so i can talk about it but it was the same night at la lakers games and american music awards on the same block and all the cops were on the other side so we jumped off the the opposite side and got, got away um We've jumped buildings down in Mexico, Costa Rica. Um, in South Africa, we jumped a, a soccer stadium. Um, inanimate uh, uh, rocks, we've jumped Squamish cheap up in Canada, which is a 2,000 foot cliff. Um, in the Alps in Switzerland, we jumped the north wall of the Eiger, which is 14,000 feet high. 
um, which is it's incredible, you know, standing on a 14,000 foot rock, looking down and, you know, having the ability to say, okay, well, I'm going to fly down and being the best day ever. It's 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 kind of a mind fuck. Like it is really, really intense. And at the same time, you you in this community where people are dying all the time. So it makes you realize that you're not invincible, that you're not better than everyone else. You're not, you know, promised anything. Uh, last year in seven days, seven guys were killed. I've lost two friends so far this year. And that, so far, this year, you've this had year, two so friends die from being Two friends died. Wow. A friend of mine got, got unfortunately injured last week and, and is in a wheelchair now. He had a C2 injury. Um, and it's one of those things that, you know, the cost-benefit analysis needs to be right. Um, I've stopped base jumping, you know, in the, in the purest form just because so many people are getting injured. And at first, you know, you have someone you've heard of gets killed. And then a, a friend you met a couple times gets killed. And then a friend you know gets killed. And then a really good friend gets killed. Um, and I got to the point where my two best friends were really badly injured and nearly died. And I was like, okay, that's it. And that's not, that's not fear. That's, that's just the cost-benefit analysis. I, I reached such a point with base jumping that it's not going to get any better. The, the, the improvements are going to be so minutely incremental that it's, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So I was like, okay, I'm done. I, I did what I wanted to do. I got to the, the pinnacle of what I can do as a human being and I'm walking away. And that's often what I'll do is I'll go to a discipline, get really good until I know I've accomplished what I want to accomplish and walk away with my life. I think so many of us have symbolically, we're about to take a jump off a cliff, whether it be switching a job to actually follow a job that en encompasses your passions or ending a relationship or, or moving to a new city. And we're kind of there standing on that cliff, scared shitless mm -hmm. <laughs> about making that jump. What is it, what goes through your mind before you were base jumping, before you jump off that cliff? What enables you t to make that jump? Like any advice you have for people? Follow your heart. I mean, it's, it's weird. We were, we were in Switzerland jumping off this 2200 foot cliff and it's so strange because going up, you catch the gondola that the, the holiday makers got. So you got families in this, you know, in this summer vacation in Switzerland, lovers, you know, retired couples, everyone in this gondola with five base jumpers who may not survive the day, you know? So the energy is very different. And two of these people followed us to the exit points and they were getting close to the edge. And, you know, we said, yeah, come watch. I and mean, we don't care. Um, and they're like, this feels so wrong. I'm like, yes, it feels wrong for me too. <laughs> Walking up to the edge, I'm a normal person. I feel the exact same emotion that you would, except I take that last step. And with anything in life, whether it be relationships or careers, it's always going to feel wrong because we used to this, this, this normal life. We don't like change. We want everything to, we want our life to improve and change while staying the same. And they, they, they two things that can't happen to have change and improvement. You have to have change. So my, my advice to people is always follow your hearts. Like everyone spends too much mind in their head, too much mind thinking. And what, what if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? Oftentimes, the biggest risks come the biggest benefits. And, you know, jumping off a building is obviously far different to, to doing the work you love. But most people will say, you're so lucky. I'm like, well, I've had bad experiences too. You know, I mean, things haven't always gone right. But if I'd stayed in the same job I had in South Africa when I was 20 years old, selling copier machines, I'd, I'm sure life would be okay, but it wouldn't be what it is now. You know, I packed up my entire life, backpacked $20, came to the States, stayed here illegally at first. And I was basically, you know, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
But that risk has then blossomed into being able to base jump and work with sharks and travel the world and film entheogens and do things that people just dream of, basically because I dreamed about it and then I did it. You know, a lot of people are like, well, one day I want to do this, one day I want to do that. Do it now, do it today, don't procrastinate. You know, things have a way of working themselves out. I can't believe you actually worked selling copier machines. Right? I can't even imagine you sitting. Did you have to wear a suit to work? Oh, every day. No and the, way. The, the funny thing is it was right after apartheid ended in South Africa and my sales area was Johannesburg, which was like one of the gnarliest neighborhoods in, in the world. You know, it was really a lot of violent crime in that. And I was happy, or at least I thought I was happy. You know, I, I was like, this is great. And I was scared of what came next. I'm like, well, it's time to get married, settle down, have kids, do the, the responsible thing. And at the same time, I was like, that doesn't, that's not what I want to do. Like, there's so much to be done. Why is this the path that, that's chosen for me? And I realized it wasn't. You know, people, oftentimes people who haven't accomplished their dreams will discourage you from accomplishing yours. And that's just their way of making themselves feel better. If you are able to do something, do it. You know, I've never met, and I've worked with a lot of people, I've never met someone that said, oh, I regretted, you know, taking that trip to somewhere. I regret, you know, working with that, you know, that, that amazing group of indigenous people. I regret doing that documentary. I regret swimming with sharks. It's always a sense of wonder and awe. The only regrets are people that don't do things. I, I couldn't imagine if we, I mean, what the world would have lost already if you had stayed selling copy <laughs> machines, because you produce such incredible <laughs> documentaries. You're really helping people overcome their fears of magnificent animals and, and creatures that, they don't deserve to be feared and are being harmed because they're being feared. And and what was it that what what made you finally jump off that cliff and leave that job and come to the US? What Funnily enough, I was I was dating a girl at the time and I was really happy and, and our relationship ended and that was the catalyst to be like, okay, cool, well, this is it, you know. Um, and I think a lot of times people see bad situations as bad situations instead of massive opportunities. And you know, I could have easily fell into that depression, you know, go crazy bachelor lifestyle. Instead, it was a, the end of a relationship, um, the opportunity to go to the States. And I was like, well, yes, sold my car, sold everything, you know, jumped on the plane, came over here and just stayed. Um, and at first I was, I was, you know, I've got a commercial diving background, but I was working in San Diego Harbor, cleaning the bottoms of boats and it was rough work. You know, you wake up six o'clock in the morning, physical labor underwater for five or six hours for like 80 bucks a day, but I couldn't have been happier. And that was the stepping stone to do all these other things. And, you know, people forget America is the land of opportunity. And most people who've grown up in America don't realize how much opportunity there was. I came out here and I saw janitors leaving, leading the most amazing lifestyles, you know, you know, having super bikes and cars and houses. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, how is that even possible? If you can just have a normal job and succeed, what if you are just hyper, hyper, you know, in your work style, then you'd probably be the most amazing person in the world. So my goal was to become a veterinarian. So I worked in an animal hospital, uh, worked in an emergency hospital, went to college, basically like just redlined and did as much as I could in the animal world um, to try and learn and understand as much as possible while helping animals. And because it was a passion, it wasn't like, let me go make the most money in the world, let me be the best this or the best that. I worked just because I wanted to and that eventually became traveling the world using those veterinary skills and i've always loved photography photography became videography and that became filmmaking um and the working with deadly animals plus the working in the veterinary field plus filmmaking became my first tv show which was literally a, a labor of love and passion and everything just came together perfectly 
I always say to people, follow your passion and success will follow. And, and I think that it's really hard for people to jump off that cliff and go down that road because they think, oh, well, I'm a journalist. I'll never make any money. Or, you know, my passion is dancing. I'll, ne I'll never, you know, there's no money in that. Instead, I need to go work for a bank. Do you believe if people are truly following their passions that that success will, will come along and they'll be reward, rewarded by the universe? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the difference is, you know, the, the whole 10,000 hours thing. You know, if you put 10,000 hours into anything, you'll become an expert and, and, and excel at it. But a lot of people get to the, you know, 5,000 hours or 7,000 hours and like, oh, nothing's happening. I give up. You know, anything you stick with will eventually pay off. It's just how long you stick with it. And it's so much easier sticking with something you're passionate about. Like why stick with accounting if you don't like numbers? Like it makes no sense to me. Like if I had to do what we do for a living and I didn't enjoy it, I'd, I'd hate it. Like I'd hate my life. Like I'd hate the rainforest. I'd hate the mud and the mosquitoes and the snakes and the spiders. But that's what I love. So it makes it easy. So if I'm getting paid or not, doesn't matter I'm doing what I love and you know money is a weird thing uh, money it distorts reality in such a way people it's kind of like being cool you know in school you try and be cool so hard and you're not the cool kid and the guys that aren't trying to be cool are cool as hell because they're not trying I see money as the same way it's 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 a thing that if the more you chase it the less you catch it whereas if you're focusing on your own thing and you're passionate and you, all your energy goes into that money just kind of follows uh, and, and when people start grasping that idea, it changes fundamentally what they do and how they do it. I know so many rich, old, depressed people. And I heard recently that um, Mark Zuckerberg is suffering from heavy depression. And that made me chuckle. Not because I want him to suffer from depression. It just proves what we know. Money doesn't buy you happiness. Like sure, money will buy you a meal and a house and a car. But it still doesn't make you happy. You know, you'll be as, as lonely and unhappy in a giant mansion than you would if you're living on the street. It's about what you do and how you do it and how passionate you are about it. And that's, I think that's, that's uh, something that not enough people understand is that if you are following your passion or I think it's people have trouble surrendering to the universe and actually trusting that if they follow their passions, everything will fall into place. And I think you and I are both people that are complete examples of that. You said you had to clean boats originally. Now you're this huge filmmaker making a tremendous difference in this world. You know, money has come in and, and, and same with me. You know, I was very much criticized by uh, people close to me and even family members for becoming a journalist because I was told, oh, well, you're talented in other ways. Why don't you, you follow money? Why don't you, you know, my family's in real estate. Why don't you start buying apartment buildings mm -hmm. and, and work in construction? And I said, because I don't love construction. I, I hate it. I don't, I would hate to sit there crunching numbers and, and repairing buildings all day. I love nature. Mm -hmm. I love filmmaking. I love photography. I, I love journalism. And somehow I just knew if I followed my passion, everything would fall into place. And even when times have gotten hairy, where I have been looking at the red line on my bank account and freaked out, the money always comes. And, and that's how I know I'm being rewarded by the universe. And I really very much believe if you are following your true path in life, because that is your true path, everything else will fall into place. Well, I mean, it's, you, you hit the nail on the head, the, the whole, you know, surrendering. There's the Buddhist saying, try, but don't try. It's almost like do, do enough that you like you're making a concerted effort, but don't over try. Don't try and overthink it. You know, if we just accept everything that's happening to us as divine, like it's, it's part of the journey, the whole Bill Hicks thing, like this is just a ride. If we just accept it as 
this is what is happening to us and we don't get attached to emotion of happiness or sadness or this is just what's happening it's absolutely beautiful the fear of not having money is so overwhelming for a lot of people and then you look at what money actually gets you yeah sure it gets you food yeah it gets you you know accommodation but at the same time it doesn't bring all the other things that we need as human beings to survive and i think the more pure your your intention is the more pure your energy is the more focused you are on what you're doing and it is from the heart everything else falls into place and i think if more people did that and less people spent you know we, we we make films we 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 report on things we tell stories but most of what i do is not to make people enjoy my experiences it's inspire them to do their own things um you know a lot of what i do is is trying to show people that anything is possible like i'm i wasn't an athletic guy i wasn't the smartest smartest kid in school i wasn't rich you know i i didn't have any of these things that most people think that you need to do the stuff that we do it was just an overwhelming desire to do it like I, i've always wanted to do what i do so it's 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 you know it's made a huge difference in my life seeing people accomplish things with not very much and you're like well he's not different to me he's just a person so and you've had times where you've had to take you've had to work you know like you said uh cleaning boats to to get where you are now do you have any advice for people on baby steps they can start taking say someone listening's in a 9 to 5 job that they hate working for a bank or crunching numbers when they're really a creative or vice versa do you have any advice for people on on small steps they can take to start getting to the point where they can be fully following their passion day in and day out? Uh, yeah, I I'm a firm believer in thoughts become our words, words become our actions. You know, words are so powerful and you know people saying I can't, I'll never, I won't, you know, I wish. It's that's terrible. If you think of something like it's already happened, you think about it like it's the most real thing in the world. Um, anything I've accomplished, I've always been. It's happened in my mind. Now I just need to manifest it, and and that's a huge thing. And also pick something you're passionate about, not your second or third or fourth thing. What's the thing you want to do the most? Like what is worth dying for? You know, I often look at projects that I'm doing. Uh, you know, things I'm about to uh, accomplish. places I'm going I'm like is this worth dying for because <laughs> you are on the brink of your verge of death on many of your situations but that's the difference we're all on the verge of death like we're all like, we could all die on a plane on the way to a shoot or we could all die in a car on the way to a meeting it it's it's the verge of death you know sort of conundrum puts it in perspective in that is this worth dying for is this the last thing I want to do on earth like obviously you know you still have to pay bills and you still have to do the usual things but the the overwhelming you know core of your existence is it something you're willing to die for if it isn't don't do it like really start you know manifesting what you want to do you know people have so much built-in talent that that they just sort of gloss over because they resign themselves to oh well he's special he had some sort of genetic different upbringing and i'm not so it make it makes a massive difference when people really want to do something and they do something from the heart and it, it just it's like it turns on a light bulb inside of you and all of a sudden you go from being depressed i think part of the reason many people get depressed is because they're not following their true path and they know they should be on a different path and instead they're just following the money as you mentioned earlier and that that is a huge cause for depression because your soul is trying to tell you you're going the wrong way you're going down that wrong road and you just completely ignore it and then and then follow the wrong path live your whole life bored and depressed and yeah you may have a ton of money but but what does that get you life is so damn short like if you're listening and you are in on a path you know is the wrong path be like donald you know <laughs> go to the edge of that cliff and take a jump and and start following your passions because life is way way too short and 
Something that you've done, Donald, amongst many things. I, I could sit and talk with Donald for hours about all of his adventures. It's, it fascinates me because he's someone who's constantly overcoming fears. And you, you did a show for Animal Planet called Venom in Vegas. Mm. And you actually lived in a, like a, a cage full of snakes or like a house full of snakes for, for how long? For 10 days. Yeah, that, that, interestingly enough, it was... You know, I, I thought, well, you know, we had just finished, finished shooting a 10-part series about specifically dangerous animals around the world. And the thing that kept coming up was deadly snakes. And people have this built-in fear of snakes. Part of it's due to the Bible, you know, Adam and Eve and, and the serpent. Part of it's due to the fact that snakes bite people and they can hurt. But a lot of it, lot of it is unjustifiable. Like, you know, snakes are scary, but they're not going to jump out and attack you. I hear so many stories of people saying, a mamba will chase you, a bushmaster will chase you, a snake, you know, a rattlesnake will chase you and bite you and kill you and your children. And I was like, well, what's the best way to show people that their fears are unfounded? Um, we came up with an idea where I'd live in a, a snake cage, essentially, with start with 50 snakes and each day add five snakes till we got to 100. Were they all venomous? Uh, most of them were venomous. Uh, we try to, like, the, you know, once again, working with TV networks, you don't always get what you want. Um, and, and eventually... But you wanted them all to be venomous. Yeah. And the idea was to prove... <laughs> that am I not surprised? Yeah, the idea was to prove that snakes don't want to kill you. And... Um, the day before we went in, the lawyers from Animal Planet said you can't have mambas. So black mamba is one of the most feared snakes in the world. The, um, the second biggest venomous snake in the world, the fastest moving snake in the world, can kill you in an hour. Um, just because of my history, I'm allergic to snake venom. I'm allergic to anti-venom. I have some you know, tumultuous history with snakes. Um, and the Animal Planet lawyers were like, you can't have mambas. I'm like, well, then I'm not doing it. The whole point is to show snakes don't want to bite you. If we have all the snakes except for one, then that doesn't make sense. So eventually they let me do it. Um, 10 days on the Vegas trip across from O'Shea's casino in full view of the public. We had two cameras live streaming to the Discovery website. And the biggest thing that people say is, where are the snakes? I'm like, exactly. Like the snakes were there. They were hiding. The mambas would see me and crawl away. And the idea was to show snakes don't want to bite people. And it, it worked overwhelmingly well. Um, the, the flip side of that is in third world countries where our rice and our sugar and all the all these you know sort of things we consume come from people are walking around barefoot with no anti-venom with deadly snakes and 120,000 people die every year in India from snake bites which is totally preventable so the idea was to show two things snakes don't want to bite us but when they do it's because they're trying to protect their own life which you can't blame an animal for trying to protect its life and if you do get bitten by a snake, there is a drug that you can take that can cure it. Unlike a gunshot wound, you can't take a pill for a gunshot wound that will undo it or car you know, accident. So that was the idea behind that. And for a lot of people, you know, being in a room infested with snakes is the ultimate fear. For me, it was a vacation, quite literally. I'd spent the previous 18 months shooting and for the first time in 18 months, I was in one location. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to eat and sort of do TV every now and again. It was really, it made me understand a couple of things and made me understand people's psyche behind snakes that people have a built in fear and then also how it feels to be in a cage. You know, I'm one of the few people that spend 10 days in a glass box with humans coming past and knocking on the glass and It's like you were in hands. a zoo, <laughs> a reverse zoo. And made me understand the whole zoo mentality a lot more and, and how weird it must be, especially for, for higher primates like, you know, chimps and orangutans being, being in a cage. Did you ever wake up at night and you had snakes crawling on you or any anything that 
scared you or freaked you out? Or? Um, well, the, the way it worked is um, on the on the Vegas Strip, there's a whole bunch of jumbotrons, these big TVs that they, they played commercials on. So through our deal with, with Caesars Palace, they had my show commercial on seven of the jumbotrons down the Strip. And one of those jumbotrons was right by the enclosure. Um, so every three minutes, my promo for my show would come on. My name's Donald Schultz. My name's Donald Schultz. And you started killing me. Like, imagine hearing your own voice every three minutes, 24 hours a day for 10 days. Like, I was, I was losing it. So I said to the producers, I want noise-canceling headphones so I can sleep. One of the safety measures we had is two-way radio. When I'd sleep, the producers would watch me. So night five or six, I was really tired, got the noise-canceling headphones, went to sleep. Um, and a black mamba tried to get into my bed. And they were radioing me, but I couldn't hear them because I had noise-canceling headphones on. So apparently the mamba got in with about a foot of my, the back of my head and I turned over in my bed and sat up and the mamba got a fright and crawled away. So I don't know what happened. The next morning the producers were like, dude, that mamba nearly got in your bed. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why didn't you stop the mamba from getting <laughs> in my bed? They're like, you, you sat up and chased it away. I'm like, well, I don't remember it. So that was the closest call that we had. But um, what would happen if a mamba had bitten you? I'd die. I mean, the, 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 there was a the case in South Africa of a mamba going through the roof of a hut um, with a family of five sleeping in there, but everyone and left the room and all five people died. So the next morning they came in because it's not a painful bite. It just stops your breathing. Um, and, you know, the, the idea was that this it's one of those shows or experiments or, you know, displays where to the public, it seems like suicide to insurance it seems totally safe and the truth is it's right in between you know there's no guarantees that i won't get bitten there's no guarantees that I will get bitten um the only way to really manage it is to try and be as in tune with the reptiles as possible which is what i did and i you know got out without being bitten and how did you control any fear that you had um while you were in there or did you not have fear when, when i was when i was diving um my my diving instructor was an ex-special forces guy and he had an amazing piece of advice i still use to this day he's like if you're gonna panic panic slowly and that's something that's always stuck with me if something's going wrong if you just slow it down you know mentally instead of freaking out and reacting and doing all the stuff you just slow it down into you know steps into bite-sized pieces you can manage a lot so my biggest fear with the the shoot and the snakes was the crew because the crew had to come in to film so we had a crew of three or four people in the box while we were filming and they had to go out they wore full body suits that were bite proof and all that but at the same time you're still worried you know i do this stuff because i want to do it my biggest fear is having someone be injured because they're filming me doing something I want to do. So that that was the biggest fear. And managing that was, you know, me being more concerned about those guys and my, my own safety. I think that the media definitely has caused, you know, it deeply ingrains fears inside of us that we don't necessarily need to have fears of our neighbors, fears of, of taking risks, fears of fear of death. And it also, I think one of the, the sad things is that the media has really taught us to fear many animals mm -hmm. and that's affecting the conservation of these animals and their survival of these animals. What, what have you noticed in, in your own conservation efforts? What animals are we scared of that we don't necessarily need to have fear of? Or is it just all around the, the board, all of them? Um, no, there's, there's, you know, there's some animals that fear is a good emotion to try and attach to them, but more fear from a respect standpoint. I mean, the easiest emotion to get out of a human being is fear. And, you know, we see it in mainstream media. Everything's coming to gas. West Nile virus, sharks, crocodiles, whatever it is. It's like, you know, it's coming straight for you. Ebola. It's, yeah, it's coming straight for you. It's, it's, it's the most crazy thing. Um, probably the biggest thing right now that's, that's, you know, suffering from this fear paradigm for no reason whatsoever is sharks. 
Um, I'm doing a thing with uh, Discovery Channel next week on Shark Week. Um, and Shark Week is a double-edged sword. You know, one side of it is really got people to love sharks and want to conserve them. But the flip side of that is most of the shows are fear-driven. Most of them are like blood in the water, shark attack, rah, 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 guy with one arm. And statistically, you have, as a Californian, you have four times as likelihood of being executed by the state of California than being attacked by a shark. You're as likely to be hit by an asteroid as getting attacked <laughs> by a shark. So the statistics are ridiculous. But human, the human mind doesn't have the ability to quantify that. You know, we think of everything as one-to-one, and it really isn't. You have a one-in-three chance of getting cancer. You know, there's no cancer week on TV because it's not as sexy. Um, so sharks and conservation, they've suffered heavily. A lot of shark populations are down 99%, and a lot of it is because of the Jaws paradigm. You know, even Steven Spielberg has said he wish he never made Jaws because it's put sharks in that, like, they're coming straight for you, want to kill you, mindless killers. And I've worked with great white sharks. They're probably one of the most majestic creatures in the world. They've got deep blue eyes. You know, most things, even lions and, you know, big cats, when they see a vehicle, they see one big creature. With great white sharks, if you're inside a cage, they'll make eye contact with each person as they're swimming past. They recognize individual beings. They're really intelligent. Um, and yet we've relegated them to that mindless killer, disgusting creature, only good shark is a dead shark. Um, so I think sharks suffer from it in a, in a big way and having shot shark week for many years and been in the water with every species of deadly shark and, and, you know, not used a cage. Uh, the biggest thing that, you know, I'd say to people about sharks and fear is what you see on shark week is 45 minutes from a 10 day shoot. And it's basically like the highlight reel. Like we'll take 2000 pounds of chum, throw it in the water and get the sharks to come in and we'll have maybe two or three minutes of sharks going and biting. The rest of the time they're just mellow and obviously you cut it together with dramatic music and it seems like they're coming straight for you um whereas the reality is like i've had sharks push me out the way to swim past i mean they really are incredible creatures so the whole fear thing when i was young i watched jaws i was scared to swim in the swimming pools at night and that's something that i've dealt with a lot that to the point now that sharks it's, it's almost impossible to be bitten by a shark you have, you have to try exceedingly hard and you've, you've dove with great whites without a cage. Yeah, great whites, tigers, bulls, all the big big guns. I've filmed them all. I mean, we were filming great whites in, in South Africa in February. Um, and you've and never had one of them take a nibble on you? Or no, like you I said, mean, it just pushed you away with it, its nose? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's the thing is if sharks started attacking people on a regular basis, we'd be in deep trouble. I mean, worldwide, I think there's between seven and ten shark deaths a year. Um, compared to, you know, four and a half to five million sharks being killed by us. Uh, yeah, the, the chance of being attacked by a shark are so minimal. Obviously, you can increase those odds by swimming at dusk in muddy water in Florida where there's bull sharks during the top and run, but then that's stupid. You know, that's like, you know, running around with a Crips bandana on in Inglewood with a gun in your hand, you're going to die. But, you know, at the same time, in a normal environment, under normal situations, sharks are not to be feared. And I, I think as a scuba diver as well, when I see a shark, it's so rare to see them. They're so beautiful that I get so excited to see one. I just want to swim to it mm-hmm. and, and, and check it out versus running away from it. And I've never once, I've, I've seen maybe five sharks, but I've never once had any shark come near me to try to attack me or or, or anything like that. I, I think they seem, they seem to be very gentle, docile creatures that just want to be left alone. I mean, they're, they're unchanged for 150 million years. The design has suited them very well. Um, you know, the, the, there is no shark that is out there constantly looking to eat humans. Um, you know, 
contrary to popular belief, there are some animals, but you know, they're more like crocodiles and, and, and man-eating lions and things like that in Africa. But as an American, you know, living in the United States, there's very few creatures that are out to get us. Um, you know, most of the stuff is man-made in our minds, fear-based from TV. Um, you have to go out of, out of your way to get into trouble with animals. It, there's an amazing video of you actually cha uh, charging back toward a charging elephant. Um, and and it's, it's almost like you're the animal whisperer. Like you had this angry elephant charging at your crew about to potentially kill your photographer. And when everyone else is running away from this charging animal, you bravely run toward it and actually stop it and prevent it from harming your crew. Can you tell us more about the story? I know I'm not describing it as, as well as I should, <laughs> but um, I'm definitely gonna put this video of this, we'll, we'll try to put a link, it's online, so I could put yeah. it up on Reset. Yeah. So I'll put a link on it on reset.me when you find Donald's podcast, we'll have it there in the description so you can check it out. You have to watch it because it this video encompasses Donald's bravery and how he's able to completely overcome fear and even the most trying situations and I mean, you literally stop a charging elephant with your hand. Well, I mean, the, the, the backstory was we were in Kenya uh, working with the Kenya Wildlife Services and, and I've been doing a lot of anti-poaching work. Uh, elephants and rhinos specifically, as well as sharks, have been hit really hard in the last five years. Uh, so, so we got a call out. There's an elephant that was hit in the leg with a poison arrow. Um, there's a plant on my veranda there called African Rose. It's desert rose. And it's basically you dip your arrows in it and you shoot elephants. And rather than using guns, poachers are using this, this toxin. Um, and they use between one and 30 arrows and eventually the elephant dies of septicemia. So this elephant had been hit in the leg. Its whole leg was rotting off. Um, we got a call out. We drove for two hours on the way there. We darted the elephants, went down. You know, the veterinarian was up to his you know, armpit pulling out dead flesh out of this elephant's knee. Um, you know, big massive wound. You could have fit your head inside of it. Smelt terrible. Uh, we fixed the elephant's knee, found the arrow, like the actual poison arrow, pulled that out. Um, and then we, we sort of gave the reversal for the elephant to, to wake up and then left. Um, so, we, you know, a good 100 feet away. Elephant, because of its injury, was having a hard time getting up. So it's hot African sun, you know, this could be a fatal experience for the elephants if we don't do something to intervene. So we went back, tied a strap to its tusk. So it's a massive elephant um, and then used a four by four to stand it up. In doing this, the crew I was with, which is a BBC crew, were getting closer and closer and closer. And, you know, just the, the empathetic nature of people, you want to make sure the animal's okay. So the crew was getting closer to see if the elephant looks like it was dying. So they obviously want to intervene. Um, I felt like something was going to go wrong. So I started walking in to tell him to get away. As I started telling him to get away, the elephant jumped up, was pulled up onto its forelegs, fixated on the cameraman and just started charging him. So we all turned around and ran away. Um, our getaway cars were about 100 feet away from the elephants. I got to the getaway car and um, a guy points the AK-47 at my face. So I was running full tilt. He points the gun at my face and I'm like, oh shit, what's going on? Look behind me and I saw our cameraman fall and he went fetal. I was like, man. So I turned around and ran back. And what went through my mind, there was a certain amount of fear, but it wasn't fear of dying. It was a fear of our cameraman Frank being killed and the elephant being killed. Like the thing that went through my mind is like, we're not elephant killers. Like in this elephant to it, this elephant, all we've done is mess with it. We dodged, we mess with it, we ripped his leg apart. We might as well be poachers. Like it doesn't know any better. It's in a state of fear. It's in a state of survival. So all I wanted to express the elephant was that we're the good guys. Like we're trying to help you. Just you're going to get killed if you don't stop. So I ran back. Um, 
I'll never forget because we, we ran towards each other and while I was running away, it's like every anxiety dream I've had, you're running and the thing behind you is getting closer and closer and louder and louder and this elephant's trumpeting. It's like running on the ground and it's like making these elephant noises <laughs> and it's moving really fast. So I turned around and I ran back and I ran as fast as I could to where Frank was and I made it just in time between him and the elephant and threw my arms up and I shouted at the elephant to turn around. And what I was trying to express to the elephant was that you're going to get killed. Like this is going to end badly. This is not what we're trying to do. We're trying to help you. And he stopped. I'll never forget because I dust, you know, when we stopped kind of cartoon style, we stopped like, Arr! and our dust hit each other. I had my hands up and his eyes were huge. They were size of tennis balls, big and red and freaked out. And I, and I turned him around. I was standing between his tusks, essentially. And I turned him around and told him to leave. And he, he almost like sighed. He was like, and he turned and he walked away. And all that happened within 10 seconds, like from running away to the guy while I was running back towards the elephant, a gunshot went off, which I, you know, I was, as I was running, I was like, I hope he doesn't shoot me in the back of the head. Like it just suck. Um, the whole thing was 10 seconds. And then we went back and it's like the, the whole situation would, went from really good and happy to fixing the elephant to really shitty. Like someone's going to die, potentially elephant too, and maybe more crew members um, to really happy again. It was a weird, weird, um, energetic flow. And that night at dinner, um, the executive producer said, you know, I've never seen a situation go from so bad to so good so quickly. And I'm like, well, yeah, the, the converse is true. You know, you could have a situation go from so bad, so, so good to so bad. Like imagine how it would be having a dead elephant laying on the ground, a dead human being, like all of that. And that's what went through my mind. It wasn't so much like, am I going to be okay? It's like, is this guy going to be okay? Is the elephant going to be okay? And I think with animals, when you have that purity of heart, that like no malicious intent, just like this needs to be okay. I think they get it. Like they, they are smart creatures. So that, that was the, 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 the whole experience. It was very surreal. And you know, then we watched the footage back and I saw how close everything was. I was like, Oh, that was pretty bad. But at the same time I would have done it again. And even if I had done it and got hurt, and the elephant was okay, it would have still been worth it. Because it's, you know, the elephant, his knee was sore, he got shot, he woke up, he was surrounded by aliens, and his leg was even sore, so he just did the only thing he could, and that's charge the guy that he thought hurts him. And what were you thinking, what was going through your mind as you, you were running away, about to, you know, save your own life, and then you stopped, when everyone's running away from this charging elephant, you turn around and then run toward it. What was going through your mind at that point when you started running toward this charging elephant? I just, I, I thought Frank was dead. I thought the cameraman was dead for sure. Um, there were 16 of us in the field and our getaway cars drove away. Like, and afterwards I spoke to one of the drivers. Oh, that's and, nice. They just left you guys yeah, and, and the driver, like, the driver, peace out. Yeah, the driver, <laughs> the driver was like, he's like, I've seen what elephants do to cars. I wasn't going to stick around. So they left. So what went through my mind was Frank's probably dead. There's a bunch of people in the field that I don't want to die either. Um, and I don't want the elephants to get killed. And if I'm between the elephants and the guy with the gun, they probably won't shoot him. Um, and if I bring enough energy, the elephant will probably stop. You know, I've never charged an elephant before. I don't know many people I'd have. Um, theoretically, it should work, but it's a difference. It's like trying to stop a train, you know, using physics that you don't understand. Like it's, I just, I didn't know. But at the same time, I wasn't willing to let people, including Frank, get hurt or the elephant get hurt. So that's what went through my mind. It was just like, I don't want anything bad to happen. And, and yeah, pretty much worked out that way. 
And if you want uh, inspiration and in facing your fears, definitely head to Reset Dummy and watch that video because it, it's just so inspiring to see Donald's bravery and also to see just how how we are able to overcome our fears and and really if you're able to be calm and and really crazy situations, you can you can turn them around like you were saying, turn a very bad situation into a very inspiring and amazing situation. And I, I think what is holding a lot of people back in life is the fear of death. Hmm. I think so many of us by traditional religions and, and just in general by the media, we've been really taught that everything around us is going to kill us, A, and, and B, to, to really fear death. And, and that used to be a tremendous fear of mine just working as a journalist. I'd seen people killed. I had friends who were jailed and it was just constantly on the mind. And it, I noticed it was causing me a lot of anxiety and it was also keeping me from living. Mm -hmm. So many of us are not living because we're so scared of dying. How silly is that? I mean, we're only here for a short time. And plant medicines, uh, especially psychedelics, uh, ayahuasca in particular, really have helped me overcome that fear of death. I've had uh, several ayahuasca sessions where after drinking this incredibly powerful sacred uh, tea from the Amazon and kind of sent into a dreamlike state, after drinking it at the beginning, I actually feel like I'm dying. And, and I've started to freak out on many occasions when this has happened. And, and then I feel myself come out of my body and then go back into my body and come out of my body and go back in. And when I'm out of my body, I am still existing. And I'm told by this universal consciousness that this is the real you, not this body, Amber, you really are the soul that will exist no matter what. You'll never really die. And that has changed my, that, that experience has single-handedly changed my entire outlook on life. I've shed so much of my fear. It's been so liberating to know that death doesn't really exist. Yes, we may lose our bodies here on earth, but our soul will always live on. And, and being able to really shed my fear of death has has been so life transforming and and as I said earlier just it's been so much freedom. I, I think if more people are able to shed their fear of death, well we would see a lot more productivity, <laughs> a lot more expansion of consciousness. We'd have a lot more ingenuity uh, because so many of us are held back by that. Do you have any advice as someone who jumps off cliffs, you know, faces charging elephants, swims with sharks? Do you have any advice for people on, on ways they can overcome their fear of death? Well, the interesting thing, there's a saying, you know, you don't have a soul, you have a body. No, you don't, how's it going? You don't, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. And, I love and, that saying. And, and the, 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 the weird thing is all the big religions agree. Like, there's no ambiguity about this, that we are basically a television, you know, transmitter model where our body is a television set. The signal's coming from far away and if you turn the TV set off, it doesn't kill the transmission. So I'm, I'm very much a believer in that and that all the religions agree. Um, you know, one of the, the most profound things for me was sensory deprivation and being able to see the separation between consciousness and body. Uh, smoking DMT and mushrooms certainly do it too in, in a massive way where you can see that, you know, if this thing is, you know, this you know, meat puppet that we are is gone, our consciousness doesn't cease to exist. Um, you know, news flash, everyone's gonna die. Like everyone has this big 
sort of, oh, I may not die, I may be able to get away with it. And, and the fear of dying is so crippling that people really have a hard time with it. Uh, once you realize, okay, I am going to die, and it's not going to be the end of consciousness, it's just the end of this physical manifestation, suddenly becomes a lot more freeing. Uh, you know, being able to navigate this world knowing that there's only a finite amount of time is a blessing. Like, how weird would it be if, if life was infinite? Then it would be it would lose all of its you know beauty. Uh, working with entheogens, specifically mushrooms and DMT, and sometimes even in, in the sensory deprivation state, shows you that consciousness and physical matter aren't the same thing. They they operate independently from each other. So I'd say for people that are scared of death, you know, and don't necessarily want to work with entheogens, try sensory deprivation. You know, with the right conditions in three hour sessions, you know, within two or three weeks, you can create a separation between your physical body and your, your consciousness. And once you do that, you realize that you still exist once you're out of this physical realm. We live in a very, very dense reality. And, you know, the, the, the culture we live in hates and fears death. Uh, we don't like the idea of death. We try and avoid it at every cost. It's dirty. You know, dead bodies are unclean. All these things that you know traditional people aboriginal people they they're fine with you know they, they understand that there's a spiritual realm that there's an afterlife once you die yes it's sad you know i'm gonna miss you on this realm but your spirits i should on to the, to the next next existence and i think once you start working in the, in, in the entheogen realm specifically with dmt you really get to see how many levels and layers there are and that this is just one variation of a reality that that's you know totally subjective um, so I'd, I'd say advice to people is accept the fact you're going to die. It's going to happen. It's, and it's not the scary, gnarly, ugly thing that you think it is. It's just, it's just changing from one room to another. Um, and the other thing is prepare yourself for it. Sensory deprivation, DMT, mushrooms, things like that. If you realize that this is a beautiful, precious, finite, short experience, you'll treat the world a lot better. You know, fearing death and being a dickhead until you get there is not worth it rather than being like, okay, cool, I'm going to die at some point, maybe day, tomorrow or 20 years from now. But during that time, I'm going to live every single day like I'm going to die tomorrow. And it changes your entire perspective. In, in my near-death experiences on these uh, entheogens, plant medicines, um, especially on ayahuasca, it's always been incredibly beautiful. When, I, when my spirit left this organic spacesuit known as Amber, and I started floating through the universe, suddenly nothing that had happened on Earth, nothing mattered anymore because it was I was surrounded by such incredible lights and beauty and colors and just felt like I was home. And, and it was so profound, as I said earlier, it's erased my fear of death. And I, I try to share the story with people too. I mean, everyone has their own beliefs, but I am a believer now that you life does continue beyond this life here. So you might as well make the most of what you have here and, and not let this fear of death consume you. And you mentioned sensory deprivation. I, I find that very interesting. And also, uh, I, I think that will be something a lot of our listeners can potentially use as a tool to get over the fear of death because it's not illegal. <laughs> so many of these medicines, unfortunately, are the most profound compounds known on earth to the human mind and, and to our existence, but they're, they're made illegal. But you can actually float now all across the country, flotation labs and centers are, are popping up like where we used to see tanning spas and, and yoga centers. Now it's becoming flotation centers. And, and so can you describe the flotation process and, and how often you do it? Uh, so the sensory deprivation is, is, is uh, also called flotation. And basically what it is, it's a 
bathtub, a huge bathtub that you can actually lay down in. You're in a substance that's Epsom salts water. So it's pretty dense, which makes you float. So it's like laying in the Dead Sea, really buoyant. The air and the water is the same temperature as your body. It's highly humidified. It's in, you know, increased oxygens injected in. Um, and it's soundproof and obviously dark. So what happens is you enter totally naked, you shower, you get in, you lay down, and for the first half an hour, not much happens. It's basically the usual chatter that's in your mind, you know, your mind's going off doing its own thing. Any human being with no visual stimulation after half an hour will start hallucinating. It's a scientific fact, and they may be, you know, very, very vague lights, but you start hallucinating. Um, and after about 45 minutes to an hour, your brain suddenly realizes it doesn't have to worry about equilibrium or standing or anything that it's usually worried about, and it leaves. And you, you essentially have the psychedelic state brought on by lack of stimuli. Um, it's not anything new. Tibetan monks have been doing it for thousands of years. They actually spend months in sensory deprivation, eating in that in caves. Um, and, and the idea is you're able to go inward rather than being stimulated from the outward world. Um, you can explore amazing realms. It's, uh, what I like to do is describe it as hyper meditation. It's essentially meditation turned to, to, to 11 on the, on the meditation meter. And you're able to go to these realms, see things, do things that normally we can't do because we're so inundated with, with visual and auditory experiences. Um, and it allows you to leave your body. You go, you become a pure being of consciousness. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the most profound you know, non-medicine states where it isn't any, you know, entheogens or medicines or anything that you actually take. It's just purely a body state that you can accomplish through intense meditation and yoga and things like that. But for the normal person that doesn't know how to get there, it's the easiest way to do it. Interestingly enough, once you, you know, work with sensory deprivation a decent amount, you can go back there using meditation and in your day-to-day -day life without having to float. Um, General recommendations once a month. I've done it up to once a week, and it is really, really profound. It, it stimulates your mind in ways that you, you just have no idea, and it's totally unintimidating. You know, if you don't enjoy it, you open the door and get out. You know, rather than like an ayahuasca experience that you're in it for a few hours, this is totally manageable. So, for people that have control issues with, with entheogens, you know, sensory deprivation is a massive thing. One thing I will say about death that is quite interesting, you know. Your pineal gland produces DMT and it's been shown during death, your pineal gland will leak DMT for 15 minutes. If you look at the basic DMT experience, it takes about 10 seconds, lasts about three minutes and feels like an eternity. So for all intents and purposes, 15 minutes on DMT could be an eternity. And what a lot of scientists are saying now is the death experience and that beauty in death and the whole, you know, understanding the universe and all that is coming from the DMT being leaked by your brain. So DMT, rather than being this weird, crazy substance that's made by pharmacists in Berkeley, is something we have in us and is intricately associated with the death process and with dying. So that's why I think the ayahuasca and DMT experiences are so closely affiliated with death because it is part of death and it shows you death. And once you understand what's past the veil, suddenly it's not that scary anymore. Like you understand, oh, well, life's not that bad because I get to live this and then I get to have that. And, and for you, definitely, I, I, I think you're, you're such an inspiration to me and so many people listening because you have overcome your fears, even though you still have them. You, you use them to your advantage to do incredible things and, and your films and uh, the way you're able to work for conservation and protecting animals and, and just your passion is really infectious, Donald. So thank you so much for sharing everything with us here on the podcast today. How can people 
find out more about what you're up to and, and follow your work. I, I know you have some really kick-ass videos online too, so give us your YouTube channel. Um, yeah, my, my, the best place to find everything is on my website, donaldschultz.com, and it's got links to YouTube and Twitter. Um, I'm not very active in social media. I, I feel like that's one of the trappings of this world. People live too much in, in the recording rather than the experiencing. But one thing I do do is take a lot of photos. So Instagram is donaldschultz, D-O-N-A-L-D-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z.com is my website and the same as, as for Instagram. But um, yeah, I mean, you, the, the, the world is such an amazing place and it's, it's, it sounds so cliche, like, you know, life is beautiful, follow your heart, be happy, all the stuff that sounds like hippie bullshit, but it really is true. And it's, it's weird because once you start understanding the greater picture that this is all, you know, what we're designed to do, we're designed to be happy, we're designed to be fulfilled, we're not designed to be scared or intimidated, it makes life a lot more interesting. For sure. All right. Thank you, Donald, very much for coming on today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Emma.